0: what's up everyone my name is andy zaramba and i am the co-host of the vancouver real podcast and as you can see i'm doing something a little different for the intro today because quite frankly i didn't feel like driving all the way down to gastown and setting up in studio to record the intro to this week's podcast which i actually had the pleasure to do a skype call with dr robert glover and the intro was made to me by mike Mascari from the man talks community he's actually Involved with the Man Talks Mastermind program, helped build it out along with uh, Xander and Connor Beaton as well. And they made this connection because basically Dr. Glover is coming to Vancouver to do a workshop. He'll be doing a talk on September 21st and a full day workshop on September 23rd. And it's going to be for men only because this is going to be a workshop um, where men can really dive deep. With other men and talk about some very personal issues, which uh, sometimes, if you involve both genders, um, you might not be as you might not be as comfortable speaking about them. So there is sometimes value in separating, you know, men and women in order to do these kinds of personal work. But um, Robert Glover is the author of a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, and this book actually went fairly viral through the men's groups here in Vancouver, and a lot of people who read it. Really, you know, they recognized how struck a chord within them, and there's so many traits and characteristics that Dr. Glover was mentioning about men in this book, Um, and it almost sounded like it it could almost every man could relate to it in some way, and that really speaks to how, um, you know, how men have really kind of fallen off the wagon in terms of what is healthy masculinity and there's several men's groups in Vancouver operating right now all trying to establish that same thing which is again healthy masculinity healthy relationships you know at work within your families within your friends um, you know with your partners in your relationships and uh, really there's no one to blame about what happened uh, with men and why we kinda went off the rails a little bit it is kinda systemic and it really all stems down to not being in relationship with men as we're growing up you know we're a generation of men that were basically raised by women and uh, we get into that a little bit at the beginning and that's a a quote from Fight Club from uh, Tyler Durden actually and um, you know this book really again struck a chord with a lot of men through the men's groups here and spread virally through it which inspired this entire workshop to take place so um, Robert Glover will be doing a public talk on September 21st, and then a full day workshop on September 23rd. And you can find both of those at mantalks.com. And if you'd like to check those out, uh, definitely head up to mantalks.com and you can register for both events. And um, you know, if you're a man trying to make his way through the world here in Vancouver, those are some pretty uh, pretty healthy groups to be involved with. In fact, I know the Samurai Brotherhood will be there. I know the Mantalks, organization and man talks masterminds will be there so if you're looking for a a tribe to kind of help you through you know whatever you're dealing with in life to help get you moving those two groups are definitely excellent for 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 doing that and again cultivating that healthy masculinity which uh robert and i will get into a little bit in this podcast but um i'm not going to drag this out any further and uh i had a really great talk with robert um We actually ran pretty short on time. We went for about an hour, and I only got about halfway through the notes that I wanted to cover with him. However, you know, it's good not to exhaust the guests sometimes and leave a little bit there for you guys to learn at the workshop and uh, at his public talk. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Robert Glover, go visit drglover.com, and he has his own podcast. He has, of course, the book and different workshops and seminars. He actually runs North American and worldwide even, so... Uh, Without further ado, I give you Dr. Robert Levin.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Vancouver Real. My name is Andy Zaremba, and we're going to just dive right in here today with Dr. Robert Glover. Robert Glover, welcome to Vancouver Real.
2: Good to be with you, Andy.
1: Thank you. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, I'm going to get into the connection and how this interview came about in just a little bit, but Dr. Robert Glover is the author of a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, and this is one of those books that really made its rounds Especially through the men's communities here in Vancouver, and it's so funny how these these books happen sometimes because it's just it strikes a chord in just the right way, and uh, guys really resonate with it, and then they tell a friend, and then all of a sudden all the guys in, in that community are reading the book and having discussions around it, and uh, I think it's something really important. You know, it's um, I think the men's let's say healthy empowerment movement, if you want to call it that is uh, very much needed in Vancouver, and uh, I think a lot of guys have been uh, heavily impacted by your book, so thank you for your work.
2: Well, Andy it is good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation and uh, I'll tell your viewers I, I didn't realize we we're going to video before we got here, but as you see I'm, I'm a close cousin in Vancouver yeah. with the Seattle Seahawks shirt on for those of you who are listening and I'm actually down in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico where I live um, but get back up to Seattle quite often and, and as we're going to talk about I'll be up in Vancouver uh, not, too, not too long from now and uh, you know Personally, I'll just say up front, uh, I'm I'm gratified to really see and hear how much my book um, has really had a grassroots spread. Uh, we may talk a little bit how I came to write the book during this interview, but I'll just share this: when um, I was shopping for a publisher um, back uh, right around the end of the turn of the century. Um, several uh, publishing companies, big publishing companies, editors said they, they liked the book, but their marketing department said men just don't buy self-help books. Mm-hmm. And I know back when I started on my own personal Nice Guy Recovery about 25 years ago, um, you know, there was Iron John and, and there was some of those the po- uh, mythopoetic type books, Michael yes. Mead, um, But there wasn't much more than that out there. I mean, the books that I got were influenced by was, um, you know, Healing the Shame That Binds You by Bradshaw, Um, uh, a very powerful book I highly recommend is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by a woman, Susan Jeffers. But there wasn't much out there for men. And I I went to a men's group, started working on me, and... um, I'm now gratified, the book came out in hardcover in 2003, so about 15 years ago, and now when I hear, I see how many men's coaches are out there, how many uh, men's community meetings, online weekend workshops, and how many of these coaches and therapists and men's gurus say, we recommend your book, and we read your book, and we study it. I'm thinking, "Ah, that's fantastic, because that just wasn't there. When I started doing my own work, so I'm, I'm 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 very grateful. It's had that kind of influence, and I appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely struck a chord with a lot of the men in our communities here. And um, it's interesting because a lot of the guys uh-huh. in Vancouver, for the Vancouver area, um, are very open, and that is a product I think of like the education system and how they have been socialized here. However, it is those same you know socializations in the education system which led them, or led a lot of them to be nice guys. So it's like they've been opened up, and now they're willing to actually do that personal work, which before, in the self-help genre, it was maybe more female-focused. Um, so it's opened them up to the work, but it also is partially what made them become nice guys, right?
2: Yeah, So before, I can see that.
1: Yeah. So before we actually dive into what a nice guy is, um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, where did you get your education from
2: and... What led you into uh, doing work? Okay. Um, Yeah, this will all segue into what's a nice guy. Um, I'm a recovering nice guy. Uh, If you had met me 25 years ago, I would have told you I'm a nice guy. I would be proud of that. I would have thought I'm I'm a really unique uh, male, unique masculine person. Um, In terms of my own journey, I... Out of high school, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I was involved in, in the church that I grew up in, a fairly fundamental Christian church. So I decided, well, um, I think I'll, I'll go study to be a minister and perhaps work with families. And I uh, got to college uh, to a, a private a liberal arts Christian-oriented school in, in the southern U.S. Like I said, I grew up in the Seattle, Washington area. Um, And my very first class I took in college was Psychology 101. I absolutely loved it. I just loved kind of trying to understand why people think the way they think, do what they do, feel what they feel, and kind of answer my own internal questions. So um, I got two degrees from that religious institution oriented towards counseling, marriage and family therapy, Um, worked as a youth minister for a couple years, went on and then got my PhD in marriage and family therapy. Worked as a minister while I was doing that, and then a couple years after that. So I had that strong background in the ministry. But it was, once I took psychology, it's kind of like, yeah, I want to work with people. And so um, when I actually uh, started writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, I was working as a marriage and family therapist um, in, again, the Seattle, Washington area. And I had actually started going to therapy myself my then wife, who uh, we actually split about 15 years ago, told me, you gotta go get some therapy. I, I can't take you know your passive aggressiveness and your victim pukes and shit. So I'd rather be married to a jerk, because at least a jerk you know that they're gonna treat you bad all the time. She <laughs> said, you treat, you, you treat me well, you do nice things for me, but I don't know that you're so resentful and, until it comes out in these indirect ways and then I don't see it coming. And she said, you go to therapy, and I'm thinking, I need to go to therapy, you're the one that's angry all the time, never happy, moody, never want to have sex anymore, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm a nice guy, I'm doing everything right. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't want the marriage to end, so I actually joined a 12-step group and went to therapy, and luckily, right away, started getting in touch with things about me that I needed to work on, like becoming a more honest, authentic um, Person, just tell me the truth. I needed to get better at asking for what I wanted, making my needs a priority. I had to learn to set boundaries. And at that time, I was um, doing marriage and couples therapy, uh, marriage and family therapy, and and it, and it, I noticed it. A lot of the guys coming to me in the relationships were saying the same thing I was. I'm a nice guy. I treat her well. I'm better than her ex. I do everything for her. I try to make her happy. She's never happy. She's often angry. She's critical. She's moody. She never wants to have sex anymore. When's it going to be my turn? And I thought, I can finish their sentences for them. Yeah. So I invited about a half dozen of them to uh, meet with me every other week for a No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group, and I said, I'll write you guys some chapters, some lessons of what I'm learning about my own kind of journey of coming to understand myself as a nice guy, how I got to be a nice guy, why it doesn't work, what's a more effective paradigm. So I just started every other week, you know, writing and giving these guys lessons, and they and their often wives and girlfriends kept saying, you need to write a book, you need to go on Oprah. Well, never made it on Oprah, but... Not yet. It, uh, not yet. I, I don't. Does she have a show yet? Oh, i <laughs> uh, pretty
1: sure. Yeah, pretty
2: popular yeah. one, I think. Yeah, pretty popular. So um, but so I ended up writing a book. Uh, it came out as an e-book in uh, 2001 and then hardcover in 2003. And and uh, as I mentioned, a lot of publishers said ah, men won't buy a self-help book. Um, But yet the royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So apparently a lot of men are buying a self-help book.
1: Yeah, I agree. And again, it really does strike a chord with a lot of men. And I really like at the end of the book, I just listened to you about an hour ago at the gym. And you were saying that you were having a lot of resistance to um, finishing this book. Mm -hmm. And it's when you actually drop the pressure around finishing the book. And like that it had to be this big thing. And you had to be on ultra. Or whatever that looked like to you, or to other people. When you yeah. give yourself permission to not finish the book, that's when you actually finish it and publish it, and it all came out. So I thought that was a really awesome story at the end of it.
2: And and, and that was powerful because I just started writing to give chapters to the guys. I mean, there's no I had no problem writing them, but as soon as oh, this has got to be a bestseller, you know, uh, you know, it's got to be have worldwide acclaim. I got to go on Oprah. I thought, Man, that, that's, that's that's a lot of pressure, and yeah. I just found myself avoiding it. I just wasn't working. I actually went back into therapy to figure that out and just, oh, realize, okay, I'm just going to go back to finishing this so I can give it to my clients. That's all. Right. And that took the pressure off.
1: Beautiful. Well, Robert, you're going to be up here in Vancouver on the 21st and 23rd of September, and mm-hmm. uh, we've actually linked up. Through the Mantops community and our our friends over there, Connor Beaton, Mike Mascari, and Xander, uh, have actually facilitated this interview for happening. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, you know, and I think it's going to be a big hit here. And I, you know, I want to acknowledge just like all the guys in the Mantops community and the guys who are in the Samurai Brotherhood and other men's group in Vancouver, uh, who actually just, you know, are brave enough to take themselves on because it is, Uncomfortable work sometimes, and I like to acknowledge men who aren't afraid to step into the fire a little bit, look at themselves, and try to do something better. Um, it's an interesting story. I'm just going to interject this really quick about how your book actually infiltrated uh, the community here.
2: Okay, it's, it's, I'm, actually, I, I, I do want to hear that.
1: I'm pretty sure this is this is accurate. So I'm going to just tell my perspective of it. But uh, at our business here, Float House in Vancouver. Um, there's an employee named Riley Knowles, and he was reading your book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, who introduced it to a gentleman named Chris Solacek, who is also an employee at Float House, who was part of, again, that Samurai Brotherhood men's group community, which I was a part of. And uh, it made its rounds through that community, made its way into the hands of Mike Mascari. Mike Mascari was also linked to the Manpox community and is helping them build out their, their program and everything they are doing there. And now it's led to you coming up to here to do a workshop and uh, this conversation to happen. So it's just so funny. It's, again, that that virality of a book, when it strikes a chord, it's so funny how it just just sweeps through um, maybe like-minded people. I thought that was really cool.
2: Um, Yeah, I I, I love that. And, And honestly, I know that's how the growth of the book has spread, both... Uh, virally, both online and, and word of mouth, just people telling, guys telling other guys about the book, and you, you'd be amazed how many guys write me and say, I, I found your book because either my ex-wife or ex-girlfriend gave it to me, or my wife found it and gave it to me, so men spread the word, but but women like it and are giving it to guys as well, so for sure. um, thanks, for, thanks for telling me that. I love hearing those viral stories.
1: Yeah, no problem. Um, sorry, when was the book published for the first time?
2: It came out as an ebook, and that's a whole other story in itself. It came out two thousand and one, two thousand an ebook, and okay. then and then um, a lot of uh, media publicity was, was generated around it, and then uh, Barnes and Noble gave me the hardcover contract in two thousand and three. So, it, it was almost fifteen years ago now.
1: Excellent. Well, the reason I bring that up is because. There was a movie in like 1998 that I became very enthralled with, and I wasn't exactly sure why, but it was the movie Fight Club. Have you seen that movie before?
2: I've seen it. I highly recommend the movie and the book. In fact, I recommend almost anything Chuck Palahniuk has written. He's, yeah, he writes he writes men really well.
1: Yeah, and that book, that movie was absolutely geared towards men, and there was something about it. I watched it so many times, and I, and it was probably twofold the reasons I was interested at the time. And uh, one of them would have been the, the kind of anti-establishment establishment nature of the movie. And then, you know, uh, also the idea of a group of men working towards an end goal, to, you know, to, well, in, their, in this movie, to destabilize everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's so funny now when i when I'm on this journey, when I look back and be like, why was I interested in the anti-establishment portion of that movie? And it had definitely to do with... Uh, some of my own things that I was looking through as a recovering nice guy as well. Um, but I wanted to quote uh, and, Tyler and, and Durden. And here, here you
2: are in a button down gingham shirt talking about anti-establishment. I love it. Hey,
1: you know, the funny thing is, when I look like a clean-cut guy, it uh, you know, nobody really bothers it. You can kind of just get away under the radar oh. most of the time. Oh, uh,
2: go. good it, strategy. You
1: know, yeah, it actually it works, especially when you're going through airport security. Um, so, there's a quote from Tyler Durden in the movie, and it is, we are a generation of men raised by women. And he mm-hmm. says, I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. And that really struck a chord with me because it, it really does speak to um, just how this nice guy uh, persona or his psyche evolved within male populations in North America, especially, I'd say, in the Vancouver area, Pacific Northwest. Um, and uh, it really was, in my opinion, uh part of the circ- it was circumstantial how it came around it was because of social changes you know the advancement to the industrial revolution and then going to you know the traditional nuclear family which led to men being less available to raise their boys uh, and the disconnect from 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 men and women and uh you know boys being raised by women and then of course uh going into an education system where you know feminism definitely had its roots in there And most teachers, as you pointed out, are female, probably still the same today. So now it kind of leads to this whole idea of men placating to women and uh, seeking their own self-worth through women instead of getting that and, and learning about healthy masculinity through the men because men weren't available. So it's like this all happened as a result of like major social changes. So it's like you can't even... Get upset with anybody or or other men because, like, it's like it happened because they're they're born into this. Would you agree with that to some extent?
2: Yeah, you you've summed it up well, and I was smiling when you quoted the the quote from Flight Club because I've quoted that a number of times to uh, as I talk to guys um, and and. For those of uh, who've seen the movie and kind of have the context, if I remember right, the context of that is that the Brad Pitt character is soaking in the bathtub in this old house they're in, and, and the Edward Norton character is, mentions wanting to find a girlfriend. And that's when Brad Pitt says, we're a generation of men raised by women, and I don't think another woman's the answer we're seeking. While well, he was fucking the brains out of you know the woman that, that was <laughs> hanging around. Well, but,
1: they both were technically.
2: Yeah, and I had to see the movie two times, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody to realize it was, you know, one person with their dual personalities. dual personalities,
1: yeah. yeah. That's why they both uh, work,
2: they're, they're, their alter ego, that's the word for it. Exactly. So, yeah, it took me a couple times to figure that out. Yeah. So, and, and I said, uh, Chuck Palahniuk writes Guy's issues really well. He gets We men feeling alienated and disconnected and disconnected from men. And and another book, the movie wasn't great, but another book he's written I like is called Choke. Um, So I recommend that as well. But I I agree with you that, you know, okay, this is the point in history that we have found ourselves as men. I'm 61. I've got uh, a son that is 30, just turned 32. I'm actually now raising a stepson that is 12. Uh, down here in Mexico, it's my wife's son. So I, I've, I've been, you know, involved with boys and men, you know, throughout my own life and and, and as my own my own wife and, and as a dad. And um, and and really, the biggest thing is is that boys are just growing up disconnected from men and masculinity. And it's nobody's fault. It's not the fault of the media. It's not the fault of sitcoms on television. It's not. I think the educational system needs to change, but I'm not going to blame the educational system. It's not our mother's fault. Most moms, you know, tried to raise their sons. Nowadays, a lot of them raise them as single moms. Um, but, But here's the point, and here's what I try to point out, is that most of us men have not had men, trustworthy men, to initiate us into the scary, disciplined world of adult masculinity. And so a lot of men, especially the younger men I work with, the phrase I use is that that they're spending their lives hanging out in the nursery. Mm -hmm. They're they're, they're spending their lives playing video games, surfing the Internet, watching television, smoking pot, Mm -hmm. um, seeking the approval from women that they're too afraid to actually approach, you know, to to date. Um, Just a lot of guys are doing what comes easy. And that's, that's a feminine state of being, to just let, uh, to be done too to just let the world come to you. It, it's kind of like the difference between push or pull, you know, email. They yeah. just wait for everything to come. And I love that there are groups like what you guys are doing that are actually creating forms of initiation to get men out of that nursery, where we're just seeking that warm, fuzzy validation of, 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 of mom and sisters and female friends and our other guy friends that don't have a clue how to talk to women either. Um, and, and I like that we're, we're putting ourselves in situations that challenge us, that get us at our edge, that show us some discipline, that get us out of our comfort zone. And if we can do that in the context of other men and build connection and build teams as we do that, uh, that's, what, that's that's the answer. It's not blaming any of the things that put us where we are today.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, building relationships with other men, I think, is critical, Again, it's like you, you highlighted this so many times in your book how that will actually benefit men's relationships with women and their marriages and everything else, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it, you know, it's funny because a lot of um, women at first when they think of a men's group, there is a little bit of like, Well, what are you doing in there? Why why do you need a <laughs> men's group, right? Right? Why are you excluding women? And believe me when I say this, like but most of the men's groups that I know of are actually very healthy, and they do really good work, mm-hmm. which I think will actually benefit women uh, in the long run. Um, but um, I want to dive into the question, uh, you know, just the topic of your book, the subject matter of your book. And I guess the first question I had for you, I'd like to hear it in your terms, in your words. Um, what is your definition of a nice guy?
2: Well, kind of the, the, the elevator pitch of, of a nice guy, uh, it's a guy and usually internalize this belief at a very young age It's a guy who who internalized the belief that he's not okay just as he is and he either has to become something different or hide those things about him that that might garner disapproval or rejection or abandonment from others um and if i was to put in a nutshell what nice guys start out trying to do at a very early age i'm talking days weeks months old uh, as babies and small boys, and we continue into adulthood, is we're trying to manage our anxiety and manage our toxic shame. We're trying to hide from people how defective internally we believe we are by becoming nice, becoming good, becoming a caretaker, a pleaser, a helper. And we're trying to manage our anxiety, that anxiety that comes from looking foolish, making a mistake, failing, upsetting somebody, doing it wrong. and And so most nice guys are trying to manage... Those two things, their anxiety and their toxic shame.
1: Right. You know, I, and I, I kind of jumped ahead, but I really liked how you mentioned before, um, you know, getting in touch with that masculinity is a great way to to get men into that forward gear, that forward momentum and that progress in their life because that is a, a truly masculine trait. And it's something that uh, a lot of men, again, that have been more feminized have drawn away from. And, and I think, like you, know, like you said, it's like, Women are going to be definitely more attracted to a man who can go out and make his way in the world and, like, you know, create a life for himself and, 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 and be active and do something, right? And uh, that's why it's like, I think it's so important that women, like, you know, give men the time and space just to, to be able to do this personal work. And I, it, it will it will benefit them.
2: Um, well, let me give a personal example of that. Sure. I, I believe in it so strongly that um, I, I've often said, like I said, my training's in marriage and family therapy. I don't do really. Any more couples therapy, uh, but but I mainly work with men um, because of my book. Um, but I recently married for the third time, and my wife's Mexican, and and um, has a nine and, and twelve year old uh, daughter and son, and I'm parenting again. And my office is here in my home. <coughs> I've got a gym in my home, and so I do a lot in my home. I got a swimming pool out back, so I do a lot in the home. Pretty and cool. my my wife, you know. Does a lot of things around the house. So I'm around my wife a lot. And I I love her dearly. But I I still need that masculine connection. But I'm in this situation where I'm in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. My Spanish keeps getting better because my wife doesn't speak English, so we speak all Spanish. But I don't know that my Spanish is good enough to start making guy friends. Mexicans only speak Spanish. Most of the other men in Vallarta are... um, uh, that, that speak English are retirees and most of them just want to sit around and, you know, drink and talk politics and talk about stuff they watch on Fox News. Um, and, and so I, I feel that need to have that masculine connection. So I actually recently reached out to a men's coach that came highly recommended to me, had a couple of sessions. I'm going to enroll in a program, a nine-month program he has for a small group of men. I'm going to do personal coaching with him. And he said, I recommend your book to everybody. I feel kind of weird giving you coaching. And I said, I need it, and you're highly recommended. And, and he goes, okay. And I, I, just kind of ironically, after I got off the phone with him after our first session, he said, at least twice a week, maybe three times a week, get out in nature just for an hour. Just go yeah. be in nature. That's great advice. And I remember uh, having just a little bit of anxiety to tell my wife, yeah, you know, my, uh, this coach says, I need to get out in nature by myself three hours a week. And she started thinking of places I could go. So she was supportive of me doing this work of connecting with a men's coach, joining a men's group online where we'll travel and meet and, and just doing the things that make the, connect me more with my masculine. She wants a masculine man. As I said, she's Mexican. She, she says this frequently in Spanish. But basically, to translate, she says, "I've got big balls, but I never want my balls to be bigger than my man's." She said, "I want my." She said, "I love it when you tell me no." She calls me Hefe every restaurant, which is boss. Every restaurant we go in, she tells the waiter, "We only need one menu." He's the boss. Um, wow. And, so, and this is a strong woman that raised two kids on her own. She goes to um, Taekwondo Muay Thai. She's a gym rat. She's, I'm not going to pick a fight with her she, she kicked my ass she's fierce and she wants her man to be fiercer than her and she knows that she's she, she grew up in a rough life I didn't I grew up in middle class Bellevue and, and and she knows she's probably more equipped to handle shit than I am but she yeah. still has me on that pedestal that says I want you to be my man I want you to be in charge I want you to, to be the fierce one she goes I can take care of myself but I never want to, to be bigger than you
1: well it's uh, awesome that she can she she's so open about that and, and surprise surprise a woman actually wants a man that's more masculine than her right? well, she is you know yeah. and, like, and again in this age of, age of like uh, you know gender equality and neutrality and all these different gender pronouns that are being thrown around out there. Um, I think it is really, again, okay to acknowledge that there are differences in the genders and that's just the way it is. And it's, it's okay to, to step in those roles. It's like, you know, part of our society has really demonized masculinity. And there definitely is a toxic masculinity. Let's not pretend there, is. there isn't. But at the same time, it's like, you know, sometimes, especially within certain circles, it almost feels like a bit of a crime to be breathing as a man. You know, they, it's like, it's pretty. It's pretty harsh sometimes.
2: Yeah, but stay uh, stay, out, stay out of those circles. You don't yeah, want to be out in of those circles. Because yeah, um, here's a here's the ironic thing. When a lot of times, when like I'm on an airplane or in a coffee shop and I'm talking, and maybe a woman next to me, so well, what do you do? And. I'll say, well, you know, I've written a book for men, and here's what I do, and here's what I teach men about dating or relationship. And I'll tell the women I talk with men about setting the tone and taking the lead, and, and being in their masculine, and having good boundaries, and and penetrating the woman with the, with their presence. And and I would say nine out of ten women get big eyed and and say. Really? You teach men that? Where can I meet these guys? I've had women say, can I come stand outside your office or outside your workshops where you put up a website? And the thing that I found that I would tell guys, and we don't have to go too far off on this, but so many of us men grew up hearing these messages. They say, well, men and women are equal. Well, we are equal, just like the center and the quarterback on the football team are equally important. But they might play different roles, and they don't have to trade positions every every other down to have equality. And we grew up with a lot of distorted beliefs, with a lot of untested information that did come out of, of, of feminism that was untested. I, I, I went to grad school in the 1980s um, to Texas Women's University, so it was highly yeah. feminist. Grad school had men in it. But I had teachers teaching me that as little children were born as blank slates, were rasa, and that society imprints masculinity and femininity on boys and girls. Well, there's absolutely no proof that that's true. That was bad science. In fact, it was unscientific. All scientific evidence shows that in general, boys and girls develop differently. Their brains are different, their, their emotions are different, how they communicate is different, and that's, that's all okay. But here's the thing, just like a lot of us men kind of bought into this way of thinking that has been detrimental to us and hasn't served us well, a lot of women did too. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'll give you a quick example. I remember 15 years ago when I went to New York for the start of my book tour for No More Mr. Nice Guy. I went to dinner with my publisher and a female friend of hers. She was was a woman, and their husbands or boyfriends, I don't remember exactly what it was, and here was two women in their mid-30s. One was an attorney, one was a book publisher for Barnes & Noble, an editor, I mean, and as we were talking over dinner and they had their spouses with them, both women said, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten into the whole career thing, you know, successful, but both of them said, you know, I kind of like the idea of of having kids and being home with my kids and the kind of the housewife thing and it's funny because Just yesterday on Facebook people you may know My book editor came up with two kids that look like they're either early teenagers I'm thinking I think she uh, went home and started making babies with her husband
1: Yeah, so here
2: the women have bought into it too. So as men let's not assume that even though women maybe are kind of walking by these same uh, belief systems that that we've been, deep at the core of who they are, it doesn't mean they've actually really bought into it. And when you show up with consciousness and presence and honesty and authenticity and you set the tone and take the lead, women are naturally biologically turned on by that and want to be a part of who you are.
1: Sure. I mean... And again, it comes back to that socialization that was happening, right, Just because of circumstances of uh, how our society went, right? So it's like the women were taught this as well, and they were kind of bought a bill of goods. Um, and this is kind of where maybe feminism went a bit off course. I think definitely feminism feminism did a lot of great things for women's rights and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But it's like they kind of sold women a bill of goods where you now have to have a career. And if you don't do that, you're, for some reason, weak or not a proper female, and, and um, I think a lot of them bought into that and they found that path, um, kind of empty. And then usually, you know, by the age of like 30, 35, they're thinking, oh, wait, I got, to, I want to have a family. I want to have kids. And they'll actually drop out of their careers to do that. So, and again, yeah. like, this is, this has been a systemic issue, I'd say, more than anything. Um,
2: it has. Yeah. And, and let me tell you a quick story because I like sure. to tell this one because, We men and the women out there that are listening and that are part of our lives and part of the movement I know there in Vancouver, like I said, a lot of us have grown up with belief systems that sound true because it's what we've heard all our lives. I grew up in a very fundamental Christian church and believed in it because it sounded true. I'd heard it all my life, but I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, this was probably 10 plus years ago when I, uh, after my divorce and started dating and, and learned to date and was, was having quite a bit of success at dating. And part of my success was I learned to salsa dance and that taught me how to show up and, and hold my frame and set the tone and lead. And, and um, I remember I, I met her, I think I met her on match.com and she was interested in salsa dance. And so I just met her like for a coffee date um, near where she lived in Seattle. And we just kind of chatted for a little bit. I said, I'm hungry. I said, this is your, your, your barrio, your neighborhood. Where's a good place to go eat? And she suggested a place. I said, okay, let's go eat. And I said, just come with me. We both driven there separately. I said, come on with me. And I opened the door, put her in my car. Uh, I went and I drove. And as we pulled up, she says, it's right here. You can park on the street. And uh, as we stopped, I put my hand on her leg and I said, wait for me. I'll open your door. Well, by the time I got around the car, she'd already jumped out of the car and headed to the front door of the restaurant and was in the front door of the restaurant before you know, I had to close her door and, and before I could even open the door to the restaurant. And we got inside she says, I don't like being told what to do. And I said, well, I don't want to tell you what to do, but if you hang out with me, I'm going to open your door. And she says, well, I don't like being controlled by a man. I, said, I have no desire to control you, but if you hang out with me, I'm going to open your door. So we talked a little bit more and then you I know, had, had a bite to eat and then you know, went back to my car. So she had to wait on me because I've got the key, Bob. You know. And I open the door. She gets in. And, you know, we go back to where her car is parked. And as we pull up there again, I put my hand on her leg. I said, wait for me. I'll come open your door. And she hops out again. and She goes, I don't want to be controlled. I said, I don't want to control you. And I said, nice to meet you. And I thought, that's not going to work. Well, she emailed me right after that. She said, you know, I think we got off on the wrong foot. You know, I know I came on kind of strong, but I'd really like to see you again. And I thought, well, okay, why not? And I thought, okay, so here's what I did. I sent her an email back, and I said, okay, meet me at this restaurant, you know, at this location. We'll go at tapas, and then we'll walk up the street to, this, to the, the local dance place in Seattle up on Capitol Hill. And I said, we'll go salsa dancing. And, and so, so meet me at this time, this date, And she said, okay, so here I am. I told her where to meet me, you know, what time, what day, and what we're going to do. Okay, so I am kind of telling her what to do. She meets me. We sit down over top of us, and she says, I I just want to apologize again. I just don't like being controlled. I I don't like a man telling me what to do. And I said, I don't want to control you. I don't want to tell you what to do. But if you hang out with me, I'm going to open your door. And she, "Um." So then we ate, and we went up, and we salsa danced for an hour, hour and a half. So guess what I did for an hour, an hour and a half?
1: Led
2: her in right. I, I led her all over the dance floor. She had a great time. And then, you know, it was a weeknight, so we both had to, you know, call it an early night. So I walk her back to, to her vehicle, parked on a side street up on Capitol Hill, and I go to tell her good night, And she wraps her arms around my shoulder, wraps her legs, and basically dry humps me on the sidewalk <laughs> with, with her tongue down my throat. And I said, I think this is as far as we can go on on a a city street right now. (laughs) So here's a woman whose brain says, don't let a man control you. Don't let a man tell you what to do. Don't let a man do this. Don't let a man. And I just kept leading, kept leading, kept leading, kept leading, kept leading, holding my frame. And biologically, she just had to get closer, 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 closer to me. It was purely wired into her, regardless of what had been planted up here in her brain.
1: Uh, that's a wonderful story. I think that's, that, that, it just illustrates it so well. Um, and it, it, it illustrates too this, this idea that when people get this idea in their head, you know, they think they want something and they've been told they want something, uh, and, and then they, and then it becomes part of almost their identity and who they are and they want to mm-hmm. stick to their guns. They're like, nope, you're not opening the door for me. I'm not going to, you know, take that, let you take control of me or take the lead or whatever it was. Um, but then in more, not so obvious ways you we were leading her the entire time, in which case she yeah. she just like, loved you for that, right? So
2: she, she yeah, she had a, 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 a internal biological response to not only me leading but me holding my frame, not being intimidated, not having an anxiety response, and just smiling every time she said, "I don't want to be controlled." I'm just smiling. I don't want to control you. And yeah. if you're gonna hang out with me, I'm gonna open your door.
1: Yeah, and again, that's a uh, That's that's a lot of the the men's groups here in the city are are a big part of what they focus on is like getting men into that forward gear, you know, taking initiative. And and Mm -hmm. I I really think that's that in itself is just a huge step in the right direction for nice guys. Um, So my next question, because we've been kind of like going on stories and everything, and I really like them. They're really great conversations so far. But um, what would you say are some of the negative characteristics of a nice guy and uh, how do they manifest in his life?
2: Alright, well I, I give a whole list pretty early on in No More Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. Um, here, here are kind of the most basic, you know, at least the ones that I could see in myself. Um, number one, nice guys are not honest. Now that, that may come as a surprise to most guys who think that they're a nice guy, that they're a good guy. And it wasn't till, as I mentioned, that I started going to counseling and joined a 12-step group. I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts. Quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But I thought, hey, I'm in a safe group. I mean, these guys are all here because their lives are out of control. My my life isn't working so well either. And I thought, I'm just going to use this place and just start telling everything about me that I've never said about me before. And I thought, and and after a, a session or two of doing that, it just felt liberating. I just felt free. Now, you got to remember, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church, had two degrees in religion, i had been a minister for eight years. I thought I was a good guy. But I realized I am just not at all honest. If I think it might upset somebody, or I might have a negative reaction, they might not like me, they may leave me, I, I would either withhold the truth, kind of massage or manipulate the truth, only tell part of the truth or misdirect their attention. So number one, I wasn't at all honest. And and like I said, I, I can go on a long time about learning to be honest. So that there's one of the problems. Another problem is nice guys won't say what they really want, what they really think, what they really feel. It's part of the honesty issue. But it but it's just a part of, of being open and transparent. Um and, and for example, when when, when I did Kind of after after I got divorced, after I divorced the woman I was married to and I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy and started dating, started entering into new relationships, I started telling women, here's what you can expect from me if we keep seeing each other. Um, I will be conscious. I'll pay attention to you, to me, to us and what's going on. I will set the tone and take the lead. I'll show up with a plan. I'll, I'll lead. I will be honest with you. Everything I tell you will be the whole truth. You'll never find out that anything I told you was anything less than the whole truth. And I said, I I'll be transparent. You'll never have to guess what I think, what I feel, what I want, where I'm going, what I expect from you. And women all told me, I've never been with a man like that. And I'm thinking, Okay, that sounds pretty basic, but a lot of women said they've never been with a man like that. And what I found, you know, is I dated a, a lot of women. I dated a few nice girls. And what I found with nice girls is they'll never tell you what they really want. I'd say, hey, how about, how about we go do this? Okay. so. okay. Do you want, is that something that interests you? Yeah, sure, fine. Well, if you want to, and, and maybe I'd even give them two choices, and they they would never pick one. They said, "Well, you decide." And and after a while, being with a nice girl, and also I found out that the nice girls weren't always honest. You might find out they've been mad at you for a while, or they didn't ask for something they wanted, or they said yes when they wanted to say no. And then after dating a few nice girls, I, I had great empathy for both of my ex-wives for what they went through in, in my lack of, of honesty, my lack of transparency, and then my lack of leadership, leading everything onto them. What do you want to do? What do you want for dinner tonight? Do you, want, do you want to go out and get something to eat? Where do you want to go? What do you want to? And 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 I burden women with with them having to make all the decisions of them having to be in their masculine. So those are some some ways that personally i've seen and i've seen a lot of nice guys a lack of honesty lack of transparency lack of leadership another area that i see in nice guys is a lot of hidden behavior and um i've i've often said that just making a rough estimate i'd say that maybe 75 to 80 percent of the nice guys i work with have some hidden secretive sexual behavior, usually around porn, masturbation, fantasy. And that's because nice guys at a very early age thought, well, i got to hide everything about me that people might have a negative reaction to. And sex is its a lightning rod in our culture. So most nice guys hide or repress or compartmentalize their sexuality. But it's the life force of the universe. It's got to go somewhere. And it comes out in these hidden secretive underground ways. and What I found for a lot of nice guys, if they're single, that tends to get in the way of them actually getting out of the house and going meeting women, because it's easier just to jerk off the porn at home. Yeah. It also gets in the way because they think, well, if I actually meet a woman, I'm going to have to either give up my porn or tell her about it, so they don't go meet women. And if they're in a relationship, it often leads to a lot of hidden, secretive, shame-based behavior. So those are some biggies right there of the negative traits of that. Nice
1: yeah, those are huge, um, and it really is like you said at the beginning. It stems a lot from honesty and just uh, being really honest and transparent. And I guess that that lack of honesty is a reflection of the fear that they may be feeling about expressing themselves fully, and again, not being like, accepted or being lovable just because of the way they are,
2: right? Yeah. Um, and and that's why I, why I, say, I tell guys go hang out with men. Because that's where we can practice being honest and transparent and being who we are. And once we practice that with men, it's a lot easier to go back and do it in, in our, our intimate relationships. If we're, if we're straight with women, if we're gay with the, guys we're, the guy we're closest to. Um, so practice all of this stuff with men. And yeah. again, I love what you guys are doing, having these men's networks to let men practice being men with other men.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what we're doing, and uh, it, and it, it really does. It, it works. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing what happens when you build relationships with other men, and uh, you can express yourself. And especially, you know, when you're separating the genders, it allows for a more safe space for men to express themselves. Especially when there's uh, assumed and actually enforced confidentiality within the groups, when nothing is going to leave that group, and you trust the men. So you're building trust with the men because you're sharing things with them, and you're also working on that high level of honesty. And we'll definitely talk about the groups and, and some of the things we can do to help us with this nice guy syndrome in a little bit. Um, and we touched on it briefly, but I wonder if you could add anything about how we got here. How did we get to this place of uh, generations now of nice guys?
2: Well, uh, you really, I think, spelled it out pretty well a little bit earlier in the conversation. And, and uh I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's just um, economic change. We don't live on farms anymore. Boys don't grow up around dad, grandpa, uncle, cousins. Um, we're just not around men very much. Right. We don't see what men do. Either dad is not here because he left, or uh, we see him every other weekend, or he goes to a job. We don't know what he does, or he travels a lot. Um, and so the big part is economic change of boys not growing up, having an apprenticeship of being masculine with dad. As you mentioned, most of the first several years of life are around women. It's mom, babysitters, preschool, uh, elementary school. I often do a poll of men and say, how many male teachers did you have between kindergarten and before you started middle school or junior high? And the average is about one and a half men teachers. I had one. Wow which yeah. so I t- I tell guys even going graduating from third grade to fourth grade if you've had all women teachers not only involves learning to read write and arithmetic but it involves learning to please a woman cuz you got to yeah. please a woman to get to the fourth grade right and yeah. so the educational system's part of it um, most of us when we hit adolescence and now we want to you know we want to have a girlfriend we want to impress the girls maybe even have sex at some point And most of us have no clue to go, how about doing it? Dating is actually not wired into our DNA. Dating has only existed probably not even 100 years. And 100 years ago, everybody married somebody they knew growing up. You married your neighbor. You married somebody you went to church with. And so when when we hit that age of, of not knowing how to date, because most of us struggle and don't want to look foolish and don't want to be embarrassed, a lot of us then go into hyperdrive of nice guy mode. We think, okay, we've heard women complain about the jerks that they all seem to fall for. I'll be the nice guy. I'll let the woman get to know me. I'll treat her well. I'll do things for her. I'll listen to her talk. And then she'll see I'm a nice guy and want to be my girlfriend. Now, that's a whole other subject, but it doesn't actually work in terms of attracting women. But that actually is then what even then fuels more of that nice guy behavior of trying to actually get connected to females by trying to be nice and let them get to know us over time. And then lots of other things influence it, but I think those are the biggest core pieces.
1: Right, and uh, where would you say, um, how do you say that the nice guy syndrome uh, negatively impacts uh, like men, uh, maybe women, and, and maybe even on a grander, on a societal scale. How do you think this negatively impacts uh,
2: the world around us? Well, man, we can talk about this at several levels. Uh, Maybe the bigger level is one thing pretty consistent with nice guys is we tend to, I won't say lacking, but we've repressed our fierceness, just that bold, fierce, go get Shit done. Go do the right thing. Go, go. You know, go fight the Nazis in Europe. Go. You we, yeah. we, that, that that's just not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's because most of us, are, we're, like I said, we're in the nursery. We're more connected to our feminine side. We want to be comfortable. We're proud of ourselves if we, you know, we reach the higher level of Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or you know yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so, one, the bigger picture is there's just not that fierceness. That that the world needs and and kind of reflecting like my wife says she wants a man who has some degree of fierceness Does she want me to take it out on her? No, does she want to know I can stand up to her? Yeah My ex-wife used to say how do I know you'll ever stand up for me if you can't even stand up to me? I mean as a woman she said I don't feel safe because you've had no fierceness yeah, I think a big picture is that on the on the personal level of, of us men I know that because of our nice guy syndrome we play it safe we don't take risk we're not vulnerable so we don't tend to live up to our potential we won't get out of our comfort zone we won't we, we don't go into our passions because what if I fail what if it's not what if I'm not good enough what if I make a mistake what if my family talks me out of it so it limits us it limits us in relationship and work and career because we're just kind of playing it safe. We're following that 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 middle ground of trying to get approval and validation rather than going to kick ass at something.
1: Yeah, I could totally see that, and that definitely plays out in uh, and even like uh, maybe the like world politics. You know, there's countries out there that are not afraid to go and kick ass, if, if you if you want to put it that way. Whereas a lot of North Americans like are very much more negotiate. They want to negotiate, which of course is always a good way to go before you know. So before, before we drop the big like one, yeah. Yeah, so like negotiation, let's not downplay that, but at the same time, it's like there is a place for, you know, going out there and, and taking care of what needs to be taken care of, right? So, well, um, well
2: and, uh, without getting too far into politics, so I'll just give you an example. I remember I went to a workshop um, with David Data, and, and I, re- I recommend his book, Way the Superior Man, to, to everybody I work with. I so I went to a workshop with him, and it was when um, – Obama and Hillary Clinton were running against each other in Democratic primary. So this was ten years ago, and and um, and he was talking about masculine and feminine energies. And said, "Okay, we got these two candidates running for president of the United States. Um, which of the two would you say is more masculine?" Mm. You know, everybody said Hillary, <laughs> which yeah. is more feminine. Obama, yeah. Yeah. and um, and without there being a judgment of it, she had more masculine traits. She had more feminine traits. Now, what happened if Obama? if we maybe call him the nice guy, the more passive, the more feminine, the more trying to go along to get along. You know, after eight years of that, you know, the country that, you know, I vote in elected a, a, a narcissist Narcissist asshole jerk. It's kind of like oh we've had enough of this energy. Let's go get somebody that'll kick ass But now we've got somebody that that, you know Can't make a rational decision to save his life because he's so much in his testosterone and his narcissism and his identity and ego all the time So yeah, Yeah. going from one extreme to another Isn't helpful. No. What what we really do need are men who walk the planet in, in a peaceful calm Radiating way, who can respond to situations with appropriate fierceness when yes. necessary. Yes. We don't have to walk around posturing. We don't have to walk around trying to trying to fix and caretake everything.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's huge. You know, um, I just want to throw out there real quick: have you have you heard of Dr. Jordan Peterson as well, the University of Toronto psychology professor? i
2: I'm, I'm not sure why that name keeps ringing a bell in my head, but I've I I know I've bumped into the name, and a lot of times people recommend people like him.
1: So So the reason I bring him up is, again, he's another guy uh, who's kind of exploded onto the scene in the past six to eight months, and um, it's interesting how many men are gravitating towards what he has to say. And and he told this story one time, and I'm going to interject this really quick, but he told a story about, you know, uh, a woman that wrote him a letter who kind of gave him an, an epiphanal idea, let's just say, of, of what he's actually doing to men. And uh, the phrase she used was she's actually reigniting the the, the divinity within men, the masculine divinity, in which mm-hmm. in which case it's like like that honorable male, like you said, like that does need to puff up their chest, but at the same time can take care of business. And I and I definitely think that a lot of men have kind of been led astray again Funny enough, mm-hmm. I took a women's study course in university. It's called Canadian Children. And uh, she was, uh, the teacher herself was a feminist, and it was full, the class is full of women. But uh, one thing I remember she said in that class was that um, the way we're raising men right now is doing them a great disservice. And yeah. she really did believe that. And I, and I think it has manifested in a lot of unhealthy ways. So it, it's great to see this resurgence happening. Um, and speaking about like, the childhood development part of it, can we talk a little bit about why or, or how little boys start uh, start taking on some of these nice guys traits? Like in your book, you know, it went from children are born helpless, you know, they, they have a fear of abandonment, they're egocentric, um, and to deal with, like, the fear of being abandoned, they develop toxic shame. Could you maybe speak a little bit about just how that whole progression works and how that gets imprinted onto little
2: boys? Sure, um, and what I'm going to say applies to everybody, boys and girls, um, but, but I'll, 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 I'll bring it back to especially nice guys. Um, we are born vulnerable. There's one thing about the human species, I think we have the longest, one of the longest gestation periods, one of the longest maturation periods of any mammal. I think elephants are in the womb longer than humans, but I mean Nowadays, it used to be maybe about 12 to 14 years to get a little boy to maturity where he could take care of himself. My generation was about 18. Now it's about 35 for a boy to get where he can actually take care of himself. Um, So it keeps getting longer and longer, I think, due to the factors we're talking about, mainly the feminization of boys, is that it takes longer for us to actually get out there and be able to take care of ourselves in the world. But here's what happens. When we're born, when all children are born, the The human brain is very underdeveloped, but there's part of it that is pretty much fully developed, and that's the part related to survival: the brainstem, the amygdala, the part that relates to, to respiration, to heartbeat, to you know, reaction to cold or, or uh, even fear, anxiety. The part that that around survival of fight, 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 fight or freeze yes. is is there, and that's all online. That, that, that those things developed in the human brain early in our evolutionary process they're what developed first in human beings as in our individual development so we're born and that that the in our human brain with this being the brain stem down here and the amygdala in an adult is about the size of your little fingernail with the rest of your brain being you know size of a small coconut and that little part, drives the brain in many ways because it's wired into every part of the brain and wired directly into our senses of of sight, smell, hearing, taste, touch. And so it gets information like that. And that's why you're driving your car and you see something out of the corner of your eye and all of a sudden, without even knowing what it is, it grabs your attention, your heart's beating, your palms got sweaty, (laughs) your respiration changed, the amygdala got triggered. That part is fully online at birth. And it reacts like that at birth. The thinking, reasoning part of your brain, at least in us males, they say, doesn't fully develop to about 25, yes. um, which is a good reason not to send 18-year-olds to war. Um, but the part that reacts to, to threat, and, and like I said, the biggest threat to a child is fear of abandonment because that means death. You know, I, I have no doubt that our earliest ancestors, if a child was born deformed or if there was not enough food to go around, or if there's a threat, they probably threw the kids in a ditch. They they were a burden. I I have no doubt our ancestors did that. So I think it's wired into a baby's DNA. I don't want to get thrown into a ditch. That's that's death. So what happens is when we experience anxiety, our parents' anxiety, our own anxiety, when we're hungry and not fed, when we're cold and not held, when we're crying and not nurtured, if our parents are angry or depressed or physically abusive or not available, all of those things get internalized into an infant's brain as I am the cause of all of this that's happening to me. Children are very narcissistic in nature. Now, remember, the reasoning part of their brain isn't even online yet, so this is very a reactive part of the internalization. And the amygdala, that part down here in the brainstem, that's the size of your little fingernail, stores up emotional memory. Doesn't do, it doesn't store it picture memory or word memory. It's all emotional memory that then is wired into the rest of the brain. And so, what happens for little children is when they experience painful, uncomfortable events, they can't think their way through it and they can't act their way through it. So, that at a very early, immature age, they try to do two things without really being aware that that's what they're doing. They try to soothe the uncomfortable feelings they're feeling. So there's one survival defense mechanism. How can I soothe these feelings? Now, they're not actually thinking it. It's purely fight, flight, or freeze. One of those three. The second survival defense mechanism that children develop is how can I prevent these painful, mechanisms, painful events from happening in the future? But it's still coming from a brain that doesn't think. Only f- it fights, runs, or, or, or hides. So, that is where we all, every human being, develops their internal reactions to the world. And then as we grow up and get older, 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 four years old, five years old, twelve years old, seventeen, twenty-five, forty-five, those internalized survival defense mechanisms that are trying to prevent, or that are either trying to soothe uncomfortable feelings or prevent them, are working all the time and are influencing the rest of the brain as our DOS, our operating system, for how we make decisions, how we form relationships, how we avoid anxiety, how we avoid being found out. And it affects everything that we do. But the thing is, we don't realize that. Every one of us, you and I, everybody walking this planet, believes that everything I think, perceive, interpret, decide is 100% rational, and based on rational processing of what's happening around me. The truth is, it's not. It's all filtered through that, that amygdala part of our brain that's all about, how do I deal with this anxiety producing situation? Do I run from it? Do I fight? Or do I duck and hide? Right. Yeah. It's
1: yeah. fascinating stuff to me. You know, um, I was listening to another podcast uh, with a, a gentleman named um, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, and uh, he was talking about He's a neuroscientist. Actually, he was on the Sam Harris podcast, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And he was just talking about they made a very strong argument on how, you know, we don't have a lot of maybe free will. And people don't necessarily like that idea. But there's a lot of things that influence us from a very early age, you know, at a time when we were not discerning adults and could and could filter out these things that get imprinted on us and these things are affecting our decision making later on in life right so it's like yeah this is why you can really have compassion for people who who act out badly and um, you know maybe they uh, you know you know not a baby's not born you know to mess up really you know they, they get they get imprinted on and made that way so it's mm-hmm. like you know have a little compassion for the way people are and how they turn out and realize that you know everyone's really they're really doing the best they can I think with what they have well,
2: and have compassion for ourselves. I, yeah, I tell, I, like I said, I got a, a PhD in marriage and family therapy at 29. I'm on my third marriage. And I tell people, I've bumbled my way through every relationship I've had because those unconscious dynamics affect who I'm attracted to, uh, who I talk to. Uh, you know, I, I tell people, I'm amazingly attracted to unhappily married women. Um, yes. And why because my first love object my mother was an unhappily married woman I I was trained from a very early age to be very attentive to the emotional Reactions of unhappily married women and try to respond to that and be the good man and make their lives better That's what yes. my mother trained me to do And yes. and I I've, I've done that in one form or another probably with every woman I've been with in my lifetime now I think all my rational decisions are rational they're not. Why would I rationally get involved with an unhappily married woman? I've done it at least twice. Um, and, and it makes no sense, but it's driven by those uh, unconscious dynamics that, that got stored up at a very early age.
1: Absolutely. You know, Robert, um, I'm not even halfway through my notes because like, there, this, <laughs> this work in this book is literally, it, it is huge. It's a monster undertaking for anybody to take on. But it's like you know, we, we, we hit on a really nice uh, amount of it today. And uh, before we wrap it up, you know, I, I wanted to get into a little bit. Well, what can we do? How, how can we, you know, get over being a nice guy? What are some of the tools and techniques? And like, you mentioned all of them in your book. So, you know, for yeah. one, download or, or pick up a copy of Robert's book because he goes through, I think it's like 44 or how many different, um, Exercises there
2: are in that book you can work yeah, out There's it. a there's a bunch of breaking free exercises breaking free, at the yeah. back There's a bunch of rules to live by yeah. um, and, and, and by the way, you know, you mentioned the workshops that I'll be doing in Vancouver And for those of us who are watching this before the workshops, you know in September of 2017 I'm sure you're gonna have people watching this afterwards as well um, the Saturday program that will be all men we'll create that safe container for men. In the morning, I am going to talk about some things we've talked about, how we became nice guys. Uh, In the afternoon, we're going to talk about breaking free from the nice guy syndrome. You know, it's going to be pretty condensed, but hopefully I'll condense it down to the things that guys can go out and plug into their lives right away. So I'll just hit on, just real quickly, some of the things we do to break free. I've already mentioned, uh, don't try to do it alone. Go connect with other people to help you do this work, whether it be a men's group, a therapist, uh, a minister, life coach. Don't try to do it alone. Work at being honest. Make that a high priority. Start working at being honest with you. Tell yourself the truth. No excuses. No, you know, rationalizations. Work at being honest with you. Work at consciously making your needs a priority. You and I haven't talked much about that, but we're well in the Saturday workshop. Uh, and, and my definition of a mature adult is somebody who takes full responsibility for getting their needs met. And we'll talk about how to do that and how to build uh, reciprocal support systems to help you get your needs met as you walk the planet. We'll talk about becoming aware of and letting go of covert contracts, those mm-hmm. if-then yeah. deals that we make with everybody. Yeah. Um, so, so that's in a nutshell. Go, go get help to help you do this. Connect with men. Work at telling the truth. Work at making your needs a priority. And that, 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 that's, that's a pretty good roadmap to get started.
1: I think it's fantastic. You know, like you said, you touched on like, the covered contracts. I wanted to get into that. But, you know, the good thing is you are coming to Vancouver, and you will be hosting this workshop two nights on the 21st and on the 23rd. If anybody wants to connect with that, go visit uh, Mantox.com. Or in the link that I'll have on this video on Facebook, you can actually it'll be the link right to the tickets if you want to uh if you want to check that out, which I, I highly recommend you do. And the cool thing is too, there'll be uh, I know at least two men's groups represented there. There'll be the Mantos Masterminds, which I'm currently a part of, the, the Samurai Brotherhood guys, they're showing up, and they're another very functional men's group within the city, and I know those guys will be there. So, you know, once you get a little taste for this work, you can actually potentially link up with those groups again. And, uh, you know, or, or maybe even start a No More Mr. Nice Guy group, right? I'm sure there's, I'm sure those kicking around there too. So there's, there's lots of avenues that you can pursue to take on this work. So, um, yes, anything else you'd like to add in there today?
2: Andy, I just appreciate you, you inviting me on. And if, if people want to find me, just go to drglover.com. to D-R-G-L-O-V-E dot com. And there is a link on my website to the program in Vancouver. But my website talks about my online university, self-help courses, my podcast, for drinking at almost all levels of recovery from the nice guy syndrome. Uh, I've got no more Mr. Nice Guy certified coaches and therapists all over the world that are listed there. So, yeah, just go poke around at drglover.com, and hopefully I'll see you in Vancouver in a couple months. Actually, just about a month from now.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent Actually, resource for sure. It's, yeah, we're, we're good. Just about a month from today, you'll be here. So that's awesome. Yeah, I love um, it. I'll, I'll release this episode, well, I'll release it uh, on Monday, so it'll come out pretty soon. But, um, yeah, also, if you like what you heard today, please like you know give us a rating and review on iTunes, YouTube, and Stitcher. It really helps the podcast get found. You know, when I've heard there's over a million podcasts out there on iTunes right now, so anything that we can do to uh, get uh, noticed is, is uh, much appreciated. So, if you're with us to the very end, thanks for listening. Uh, we also have the Vancouver Real meetups, which are running every single month. And on Saturday, we're actually going for a big hike up to uh, the Chief and Squamish, followed by some axe throwing. So, feel free to link up the Vancouver Real community at uh, VancouverReal.tv. So. Dr. Robert Lever, thank you very much for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you in Vancouver.
2: Andy, thank you. We'll see you soon. Excellent.